This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 62, entitled, What Does Son of God Mean in Matthew? Part 2. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I am your host. I want to remind our listeners that you can access the Biblical Unitarian Podcast in a variety of ways. You can listen to it online at biblicalunitarianpodcast.podbean.com. You can also listen to it on iTunes and on Spotify. Furthermore, we have a Facebook group for discussing the podcast episodes Just go to your Facebook browser and search Biblical Unitarian Podcast and send a request and we will be glad to have you. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew to see how he understands the title Son of God in regard to Jesus. Thus far, we have indicated that Jesus as the Son of God, identified as humanity's representative, enacted the role of the Jewish Messiah, played the part of the new Isaac, and pointed his followers to the Father as the God in heaven whom they all share. There has been no indication in the Gospel of Matthew that he wants his readers to interpret the title Son of God to mean God the Son or to a divine figure who preexisted in heaven prior to becoming human. Rather, Son of God is a title referring to the Jewish anointed king, God's Messiah. Today's episode will move further into Matthew's Gospel to examine additional stories where Jesus is regarded as Son of God. We will start with Jesus' own statement about his intimate and full knowledge of the Father, moving to Peter's climactic confession that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and ending with Jesus' miraculous walking on the water story. Each of these three stories offers clues as to what Matthew means when depicting Jesus as the Son of God. So let's begin. Our first point today is called the Son of God who knows the Father. This comes out of a passage in Matthew 11, verse 27, which says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That's Matthew 11 and verse 27. Now you might be familiar with this account because this also shows up in Luke's Gospel. In fact, we spent a significant amount of time in one of our episodes on Son of God in Luke's Gospel dealing with Luke's version of this story. However, Matthew's version of this saying differs slightly from Luke's version, so we can't simply treat it in the same way that we interpreted Luke's version. While Luke states that no one knows who the Son is and who the Father is, Matthew only places the Son and the Father as objects of a deep sense of knowing. Matthew says, no one knows the Son and no one knows the Father. So there's a slight difference there between Matthew and Luke's version of this saying. Matthew does have the Father 
reveal the Son on significant occasions within Matthew's Gospel, not unlike what we have observed in Mark and Luke's Gospel. At Jesus' baptism, the Father's voice from heaven reveals that the baptized Jesus is the Son of God. Furthermore, Matthew's account of the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 also depicts the voice from heaven as acknowledging Jesus as the beloved Son of God. Moreover, we will soon see that Peter's confession of Jesus as the Son of the living God was specifically revealed to Peter from the Father in heaven. These literary reveals from the Father in regard to what the title Son of God means all are indicative of Jesus' messianic role. Son of God referring to the Anointed One, God's specially anointed representative. There is no indication at the baptism of Jesus, at the Transfiguration, or within Peter's confession that the title Son of God is a divine figure, is a heavenly figure, a figure that literally pre-existed his birth, or one of three supposed members of the Triune Godhead. Instead, Matthew is keen to demonstrate that the Son that knows the Father fully is the Son of God precisely as the Messiah, as Israel's anointed King of the Kingdom. If the Father, the one who fully knows the Son, really wanted to reveal that the Son of God was a more exalted title than the human Jewish Messiah, he certainly could have indicated that at any of these key points, at Jesus' baptism, at the Transfiguration, or within Peter's confession. But the Father didn't say anything other than the expected Jewish beliefs for what the Messianic Son of God was supposed to be and what he was supposed to look like. We would do well to take what Matthew actually records in his Gospel before speculating on some hidden meaning or veiled high Christology in between the lines of clear language spoken from the Father. Our second point today is called the Son of God as confessed by Simon Peter. We've got a medium-sized passage here in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. Now, the placement of Peter's confession is pivotal in the narrative for Matthew's gospel. It is only after this confession that Jesus openly reveals to his followers that the Jewish Messiah also bears the vocation of a rejected and soon-to-be-killed figure, only to be raised from the dead, a few days later. So the contents of Peter's confession are crucially significant for our study. It is interesting to track the progress of the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples in this story. Jesus begins 
by asking in regard to whom the people say that the Son of Man is? The answers are John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, the common understanding of the Son of Man is that he would be a prophetic figure, a spokesman for God, but never God himself. Furthermore, all of the prophets mentioned in the guesses were human beings. So it's interesting that the identity of the Son of Man was regarded along the lines of other human figures. Jesus then asks directly, not about the peoples, but about what the disciples think. Not about the Son of Man, but of Jesus himself. Whom do you say that I am? Peter gives a two-part answer. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Note here how the titles Christ and Son of God are set as synonyms in Peter's answer. This is the very same conclusion one would naturally draw from a plain reading of Psalm 2, where Yahweh speaks of his anointed Christ in Psalm 2 and verse 2, and the installation of this king as son of God is mentioned in Psalm 2-7. So the anointed one, the Christ, is clearly identified in Psalm 2 as son of God, which is the very same thing that Peter confesses here. You are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. How does this confession compare to the previous suggestions of a prophetic figure like John and Elijah and Jeremiah? Well, Jesus is surely a prophetic figure in the Gospel of Matthew. There's no doubt about that. But he is more than a prophetic figure. He is the anointed King of Israel, the Messiah. However, it is critically important to note that the Messiah was expected to be a human being, to be the son of Abraham and the son of David, just like Matthew announces in the very first verse of his gospel. As a human being, he is also like the prophets, the prophets like John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah. All of these figures were also human beings. So although Peter rightly confesses Jesus as the anointed Son of God, the Son of God is nevertheless a member of the human race like the prophets were. It is critically important to highlight Jesus' answer to Peter's confession. In Matthew 16 and verse 17, Jesus notes that Peter did not get this information from mortals, from flesh and blood, but rather it was revealed from the Father above. This gives Peter's confession a seal of approval, since God revealed it and Jesus approved of it. No extra information about the Christ, the Son of the living God, is given here by Jesus. Jesus does not add to the revealed identity given by the Father to Peter, suggesting that he is more than the anointed Son of God. No, Jesus approves of what the Father revealed the Son of God to be namely as the Christ, the anointed king. Later in the narrative, Jesus is going to indicate that he will suffer and die, like all human beings who are subject to mortality. But there's no indication given to Peter that Peter confessed Jesus to be divine, or confessed Jesus to be co-equal with the Father, or even being Yahweh himself. Rather, 
Jesus is the one whom God anointed, the son of that father, that father who is called the living God. Peter's confession distinguishes Jesus from God quite clearly. I also want to look further into the possibility that the phrase, son of the living God, might be echoing a passage from the Hebrew Bible, namely from the prophet Hosea. Prophet Hosea, in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, describes the redemption of Israel's children after their exile, stating, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it will be said of them, You are not my people, it will be said of them, You are the sons of the living God. That's Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10. In this passage, we note that the restored people of God will be called the sons of the living God, not unlike Jesus being called the son of the living God by Peter. And remember, Peter's confession is not simply Peter's confession. It is the confession revealed authoritatively from God the Father. The suggestion that Peter deliberately echoed the Hosea reference is persuasive for a few reasons. First, Matthew has elsewhere taken a liking to citing the prophet Hosea in ways that are not found in Mark, Luke, or John, demonstrating that Matthew has an affinity for Hosea that could be described as thematic. Second, the initial scriptural quotation used in regard to Jesus by Matthew was from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which said, Out of Egypt I have called my son. This reference served to indicate that Jesus was the Son of God who represented the nation of Israel, who was originally called Son of God in Hosea. It appears that Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, which calls the redeemed sons of Israel the sons of the living God, could very well be brought forward into Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that is, the Son of God who represents the Israel Son of God, as Matthew has already established earlier. If Peter did intend to recall Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10 in his confession of Jesus, then it further identifies Jesus in solidarity with Israelite humanity, rather than solidarity with some form of divinity or some plurality within the Godhead. A representative of Israel is a representative of God's chosen humanity. Our third point today is looking at the Son of God who walks on water. We've got a lengthy passage here from Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you... Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water 
and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. That's Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Now there are four points in this story that are often regarded as proof that Jesus is divine. These points are Jesus walking on the water, Jesus saying the Greek egoimi, which is sometimes translated as I am, Jesus calming the windy storm, and Jesus being worshipped as Son of God. So let's look at these points in order. First, I want to describe Jesus walking on the water. It is true that Yahweh is the one who, according to Psalm 89 and verse 9, rules the swelling of the sea. However, that very psalm goes on to say that God will set his hand, namely the hand of the anointed one, the son of David's hand, upon the sea in Psalm 89 and verse 25. In other words, the authority God possesses over the sea is shared with the anointed one. God places the Messiah's hand upon the sea in Psalm 89. So, Jesus walking upon the water, walking upon the sea, as Son of God, is not an indication of some form of divinity. It rather indicates that God has shared his authority and his attributes with Jesus, Jesus being the anointed Son of God. This is exactly what we see in Psalm 89. Furthermore, Peter himself was able to walk upon the water for a brief moment, and no one would dare say that Peter was divine or that Peter had to be God in order to walk on water. That would be nonsensical. Second, Jesus revealing himself in the Greek as egoimi, which is sometimes translated as I am. Sometimes it is assumed that Jesus is in this passage claiming to be the I am from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Such an indication would be unprecedented in Matthew's gospel, and it would surely be forced. It seems more natural to regard Jesus' comment as a reference to letting the disciples know that it's me, or it is I, identifying the mysterious figure walking on the water. Even the New American Standard Bible translates the phrase, it is I, with no suggestion that this is more than a casual self-reference. Jesus is walking out on the water, commonly indicating that, hey, it's me. And he's not trying to say anything more about that. And there's certainly no reference there to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Third, Jesus calming the wind. Now, the text actually says that the winds stopped not clearly indicating who the subject of that stopping actually was. But let's presume for a moment that Jesus was the one who calmed the winds. The ability to perform nature miracles has been well established by God's special human representatives within the Hebrew Bible, within the Old Testament, like Moses holding back the Reed Sea with the wind, like Joshua doing the very same miracle with the Jordan River, 
like Elijah summoning fire down from heaven and like Elisha controlling the water within the valley. So, for a human being to demonstrate control over nature, specifically here over the wind, does not prove that the human in question is God himself. It rather indicates that God has invested his special human being with God's authority and attributes, just as we demonstrated with Jesus' ability to walk upon the water. Fourthly, Jesus worshipped as Son of God. Having seen the miracles and recognized who Jesus is, the disciples confess Jesus to be God's Son. This Christological confession warranted worship, using the Greek verb proskuneo. It was quite common in the Jewish culture to offer worship and prostration to the Israelite king without assuming that worship only belonged to God. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 20 has the nation of Israel worshiping Yahweh and King David without any indication that this sort of behavior was blasphemous or incorrect. Furthermore, the Davidic king in Psalm 45 is indeed worshipped. That's in Psalm 45 and verse 11. Moreover, Psalm 2, which we have already alluded to, tells the reader that both Yahweh and the Son of God are worthy of worship. You can see this in Psalm 2, verses 11 through 12. In sum, it was thoroughly Jewish to worship the anointed king, and the disciples, having confessed Jesus to be the Son of God, allowed them to offer acceptable worship and prostration to this human being without worrying that it would offend the Father in heaven. Nothing in this account suggests or proves that Jesus, who is identified as Son of God, is a second member of the Trinity or is a divine being dressed up as a human. Jesus is thoroughly depicted as the Jewish Messiah, the anointed human being through whom God enacts his reign. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the Gospel of Matthew continues to offer a thoroughly Jewish depiction of what the title Son of God means in regard to Jesus Christ. Jesus and the Father have a mutual intimate knowledge with one another, but this understanding pertains to Jesus' messianic role and messianic status as revealed at the baptism by the Father, at the transfiguration by the Father, and at the confession of Peter, which was also revealed by the Father. Speaking of Peter, his confession regards the title Son of God as God's anointed one, as the Christ, the Messiah, who represents the nation of Israel in solidarity with God's chosen human beings. Finally, we observe that Jesus' authority over the water and the winds led to his worship and confession as Son of God, a specially authorized agent of God, empowered to perform nature miracles and authorized to receive prostration as the Son of God, but not as Yahweh himself. Matthew never hints or suggests that the title Son of God is a title that refers to someone who is divine, someone who was a pre-existing figure from heaven, or who was a member within the supposed triune Godhead. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, is the Jewish Messiah, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham, and the son of God, who is a figure that nicely fits into a high human Christology, rather than the Trinitarian understanding of God. If you enjoyed the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Again, I want to remind our listeners that you can access the Biblical Unitarian Podcast online, on Spotify, and on iTunes. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.